Hi, everyone. I'm Joan Obra. And I'm Ralph Gaston. And we're your hosts of Catch Me Up to Speed, a podcast that helps you deconstruct the news like a journalist. As former reporters, we kept fielding questions about the news from family and friends. Questions like, what's real? What's fake? What's important? What's noise? And to help you answer these questions for yourselves, we launched this podcast with tips for studying the news in 2020. So you guys, this episode is the second part of our series that started with the last one. So that was episode 17, and we're on 18 now, right? And in the last episode, we talked in detail about the Supreme Court's role in interpreting the constitutionality of our laws. Now, in this episode, we're going to discuss the movement by well-funded groups to rewrite the Constitution, which would, you know, concentrate power even more in the hands of the few. And we're just starting to see the media connect these dots, since the actions haven't yet reached a critical point. If Ralph and I were still journalists, this is something we'd be tracking and, you know, maybe not publishing stories about right now. But in the context of this podcast, this is a perfect time to talk about the Constitution with you. And you guys will understand why by the end of this episode. So let's kick this off with Moore versus Harper. The last time we talked to you, we noted that this case is going before the Supreme Court this fall. And depending on how it's decided, Moore versus Harper could give state legislatures unilateral power over elections by stripping away any legal oversight from the executive or judicial branches of state governments. This would validate what has become known as the quote-unquote independent state legislature theory. And the impact isn't just a fundamental transformation of U.S. elections. I mean, let's be clear, okay, that is already a sea change in itself, right? But even more consequential are groups who are driven by big money. They're trying to use the state legislatures to launch a new constitutional convention, which would mean amendments to the Constitution itself or writing a whole new one. And these guys benefit from the quote-unquote independent state legislature. So let's explain how Moore versus Harper fits into all of this. At the center of the case are gerrymandered voting maps, specifically in the state of North Carolina. Now remember that congressional maps are drawn every 10 years right after the census is taken. So this upcoming 2022 election season and the election day coming in November, it'll be the first time the new maps from the 2020 census will be rolled out. And these would be the election maps used for the rest of the decade. Now the issue here comes with the fairness of the maps that were drawn. The state legislature in North Carolina is very Republican, in large part due to gerrymandering that was done after the 2010 census. And the Republicans used that advantage to push through a map so tilted in their favor that it would all but ensure them a veto-proof majority in North Carolina's legislature, no matter who was in the governor's seat. Now, the Supreme Court had already refused the case on state-level gerrymandering, saying they had no jurisdiction over it because it wasn't a constitutional issue. So, a group on behalf of the voters sued in the North Carolina state courts. In February, the North Carolina Supreme Court agreed with those voters and struck down the gerrymandered map. Then the state's Republicans came back with a second map, and that was also gerrymandered, and it was also struck down. 
the courts then ordered a special master to create a fair map for the 2022 congressional elections. But the Republican state legislatures, well, they weren't happy with that. So you guys now may be asking yourselves, if the Supreme Court already said they have no standing to take on state-level congressional maps, then how can they be okay with hearing more versus Harper? Well, the answer lies in how one interprets the Elections Clause of the United States Constitution. So here's the text of it. The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. But the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations, except as to the places of choosing senators. There's an October 3rd Washington Post article that explains how the Founding Fathers came up with the Elections Clause. It's written by Adam Jortner, a historian at Auburn University. And we're going to link to this story in the show notes, but I'm also going to read part of it here because it's really instructive. Jortner writes, To get to that clause, the Constitutional Convention of 1787 debated other options, including allowing states to set the rules for elections themselves. But the delegates had qualms about such a system. James Madison, often called the father of the Constitution, argued that, quote, legislatures of the states ought not to have the uncontrolled right of regulating the times, places, and manner of holding elections, end quote. He thought this because the legislatures, quote, will sometimes fail or refuse to consult the common interest, end quote. Governor Morris followed Madison by suggesting that, quote, the states might make false returns and then make no provisions for new elections, end quote. The convention agreed with Morris and Madison and therefore unanimously adopted the article, giving Congress an explicit check on state legislatures. Now, you guys, remember the explanation of originalism from our last episode? This is a this is an example of that, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So what Jortner did in this piece was examine both the text of the elections clause as well as the intent of the Constitution's framers. And that original intent has largely played out as planned historically. State governments as a whole have regulated elections of their congressional representatives and senators. Now, the Republican legislators in North Carolina have a different interpretation of the elections clause. They're arguing that it gives state legislatures near exclusive authority to regulate federal elections. This means prohibiting any other state entity, such as governors and state courts, from placing checks and balances on the state legislature's power. And this is the heart of the quote-unquote independent state legislator theory, right? And if SCOTUS overturns the North Carolina Supreme Court's ruling in Moore v. Harper, it opens the door for state legislatures to violate their own state constitutions to keep gerrymandered maps without any way to stop them. So Jortner addresses this in his Washington Post article. He writes, If the plaintiffs are correct, then state legislatures can effectively ignore their own state laws and constitutions because the U.S. Constitution says legislatures should quote-unquote prescribe election law. But this too would have rankled the founding fathers. While students often learn that the Constitutional Convention arose because of flaws in the Articles of Confederation, the Founding Fathers had another reason for gathering in Philadelphia. They worried that state legislatures were out of control. During the ratification fight, Madison wrote 
that it was the mistakes in, quote, laws of the states, end quote, not problems with the Articles of Confederation, that gave rise to, quote, that uneasiness which produced the convention and prepared the public mind for general reform, end quote. And it was, quote, the enemies to the Constitution, end quote, who sought to, quote, reestablish the supremacy of the state legislatures, end quote. That's quite a quote coming from James Madison. Yeah, really, right? So Madison wasn't alone in seeing state legislatures as a problem. William Plumer, who had represented New Hampshire at the convention, thundered that, quote, our rights and property are now the sport of ignorant, unprincipled state legislators, end quote. Alexander Hamilton praised the Constitution for restraining politicians in the state legislators. Delegates such as Plumer, Madison, and Hamilton wanted to limit state legislatures, not give them final say in anything. And as early as 1809, a committee composed of New York's governor and state courts threw out a gerrymandered election map crafted by the state legislature. None of the surviving founding fathers objected. And I know that was kind of lengthy to read, but you guys see that was really important, right? Yeah, I mean, that's really important and fundamental to the argument that's going on today. And let's be even more clear. The Supreme Court's decision to take up Moore versus Harper is an unprecedented move for cases about state elections. And three of the conservative justices have offered a glimpse into their opinions about it. See, earlier this year, Two North Carolina state legislators asked to keep the old gerrymandered maps in place while the court considered Moore versus Harper this fall. Now, SCOTUS refused this request, which is in line how it traditionally handles state election cases. But Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, and Neil Gorsuch all expressed support for the independent state legislature theory. This is interesting because... Some of them have said they were all about originalist thinking. And as we just heard, originalist thinking really didn't jibe with independent state legislature theory. So if this theory were to actually be used in this case, and the case passes by a five to four decision, let's say, it would overturn the way elections have been run in this country since the very beginning. Voter registration processes like the motor voter law, they could be overturned, as could mail-in voting and even the concept of the secret ballot. Voter suppression legislation could be passed without any checks or balances from state courts or the governor's office. And with the Supreme Court weighing in in this way, it could severely limit the federal role in protecting the citizens' basic right to vote. You know, when we talk to people about this case, some of them start to protest and say things to us like, but this is totally against our democracy. Yeah, and you know, there's a media narrative that's emerging to push against those protests too. It's the argument over whether the United States is a democracy or a republic. And it's argued as if there's a huge difference between the two. Well, there's not. You know, one easy way to lose a democracy is to convince a country's citizens with words before direct actions that they've never been part of a democracy, even a continually aspiring one, which is how I'd most charitably term the United States. This debate over democracy versus republic is a rhetorical weapon in a continuing messaging war. It's a reflection of an ongoing power struggle. And we're going to explain in a minute how this rhetorical argument plays into the movement to rewrite the Constitution, 
But first, I want to spend a little bit more time on why this debate is a false binary. When critics, often conservative ones, compare the words used, they talk about a democracy as if they're all direct democracies, like you'd see in ancient Greek city-states. Everyone goes to the public square, votes, and that's what passes. But that kind of democracy has never been the system adopted in the U.S. The U.S. runs the style of indirect democracy, or you could call it representative democracy. Instead of simple majority elections for every law, the people vote for representatives in the government who then vote on laws on behalf of their constituents. The other term for this is a constitutional republic, which would also be very accurate for the United States. But there are aspects of our government that are more democratic. That's why this framing of democracy versus republic is kind of ridiculous. Representatives are voted on by the people in the majority style. Politician gets the most votes, they win the election. The same for senators and state representatives and governors and mayors. This is direct democracy in action. It's just in selecting your representatives. You know, ballot initiatives are the most direct style of governance you can have, and they are allowed in several states. For example, California. And ballot initiatives are direct democracy in actual action. Voters vote on a proposition. They get the most votes. That proposition becomes law. Do you remember episode 16 in which we talked about the recall of Chesa Boudin? That was a direct referendum, and the result was a recall of Boudin as district attorney of San Francisco before his full term had expired. Again, this is direct democracy in action. Exactly. Now, what you may notice instead is criticism that also slips into the language of allowing or even directing minority rule. And this is where the argument can take a really sinister turn. You know, it's one thing for rules that protect against the tyranny of the minority. And there are rights that the minority in representation have. And they are protected and they should be protected. But no democracy or republic that's worth its salt would set up to continuously allow the minority to rule. To allow this would be the direct opposite of a democracy. And in most ways, a republic as well. Now, there are people who will take this argument and extrapolate it out to push for a repeal of the 17th Amendment, which allows citizens to directly vote for the senators who represent them in Congress. This used to be an appointment that was handled by, guess who, state legislatures. And somehow I'm very sure that the very same people pushing the independent state legislature theory to the Supreme Court right now would love to add the power to name senators from their states back into the state legislature arsenal. So the big takeaway here, when you see arguments about the United States being a republic instead of a democracy, it's not accurate. The United States is both, and that is not a contradiction. And those pushing for a big separation in the terms where none truly exists are likely doing so for other reasons. And that leads us into the segment where we bring this together. Why is this argument of democracy versus a republic important? Because it's one portion of a much bigger battle with groups that don't just want to have a Supreme Court or a gerrymandered legislature that mirrors their beliefs. These guys seek to amend the Constitution itself. And it's important to note that amending the Constitution, this isn't some sort of radical idea. Thomas Jefferson, 
one of our founding fathers, believed that the Constitution should be revisited every 20 years, you know, something like roughly every generation. His quote to longtime friend James Madison was, quote, the Constitution belongs to the living, end quote. And we'll put a link into the show notes for you to read more about this. We're pointing out that control over the process of rewriting the Constitution is turning out to be a power struggle. And because of this, we risk ending up with a new constitution that benefits the moneyed few at the expense of the will of the people. It's not talked about that much, but there have been discussions about changing the constitution itself for several years now. And one method of doing so, an Article 5 convention call, has more traction than is commonly known. Article 5 of the Constitution says that on the application of two-thirds of the legislatures of the several states, Congress shall call a convention for proposing amendments. Now, this convention can propose amendments, whether Congress approves them or not. Those proposed amendments would then be sent to the states for ratification. As with an amendment proposed by Congress, three-quarters of the states would have to ratify an amendment for it to become part of the Constitution. Now, this push for an Article 5 convention call involves the quiet policy group known as the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC. It's an organization composed of corporate lobbyists and predominantly state legislators. They work together to create prospective laws for state governments. The corporations and legislators share space and task forces to write these bills, and once approved, many of those bills end up being introduced in state legislatures around the country. Alec says they're nonpartisan, but the legislators in the membership are overwhelmingly conservative and Republican. You might recall Alec took a lot of heat a few years ago when they were featured prominently in Anna DuVernay's documentary, 13th. DuVernay had shown how Alec was writing bills for legislators to ratify as law. We'll add a link to that documentary in the show notes. Alec has tried to keep a low profile, but they're still around, and they're still moving to shape the political process to their liking. Alec held a policy summit in December of 2021, and in one planning session, they hosted a group called Convention of States Action, COSA, we'll call them COSA. And to give you a little bit of background on COSA, its founders have ties to the Koch Foundation, Wisconsin Club for Growth, and the right-wing social media app, Parler. So during this workshop session, which was reported on by the Center for Media and Democracy, former Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum made remarks and took questions about the benefits of gerrymandering for the conservatives, and it was quite illuminating. Take a listen. Rural voters, even though there are fewer of them, because of just like the Electoral College, uh, they actually have an outsized, in a, in a process like this, they actually have an outsized uh, uh, grant of power under this process. So this is why this, in a, in a country that's deeply divided, you can say, how can, we, how can we achieve what Rob said we can achieve, which is approaching a supermajority in the states. Why? Because their population is concentrated and ours isn't. And, uh, and we, we, we have the opportunity as a result of that to, uh, to have, have a supermajority, even though the country may not, even, we may not even be in an absolute majority when it comes to people who agree with us. But because of the way uh, the, the concentration of votes has, has, uh, has changed in this country, we could actually accomplish it. Now, you guys notice in that statement, 
how he mentioned governing power even without the agreement of the majority of the country's citizens. This is what we were talking about with this fight over the classification of the United States as a republic and not a democracy. What they're attacking is a basic principle of any democracy, and to be honest, most republics, Mm -hmm. and that is the vote of the public actually counts. And this is why the independent state legislature case is so important, because if the Republicans can gerrymander enough state legislatures to seize veto-proof control, they can force their states into an agreement to reopen the Constitution, even if the majority of the citizens of these states don't want that to happen. Those in denser urban populations would effectively have their vote worth less, and those in rural areas would have more voting power. Again, this is permanent rule of a minority voting bloc. And by the way, you know, it's worth noting that of the 27 constitutional amendments to date, exactly one, one has been handled via the state convention route. And that one is the 21st Amendment, which repealed prohibition back in 1933. 21st Amendment, as you may remember from your history books, had popular public support at the time of its passing. So this shows how highly unusual this movement is, and it's one already in motion. At the time of this podcast, 19 states have signed on in an agreement for a constitutional convention, and they need 34 to formally hit the two-thirds threshold. Yeah, COSA has been at this for almost nine years now. They started back in 2014, and what's going on now, largely out of the spotlight, is that groups like COSA and affiliated donor groups are putting big money into statewide legislative elections, particularly Republican primaries. What they're looking for is legislators who will go along with this plan, which will allow them to control not just the calling of the convention, but the actual votes that take place within it. COSA is also very clear on its ideology. It wants to shut out what they feel are more left-leaning participants from a constitutional convention. For example... Alec held its policy summit in December 2021, which we're talking about. They also ran some Academy of States interactive exercises where they examined how just such a convention would take place. And Alec invited a few participants from the more left side of the spectrum, groups such as Wolfpack. But COSA refused to join them. Why? Well, during this meeting, Wolfpack put forth a constitutional amendment that would overturn Citizens United. You guys remember this 2010 Supreme Court case? Because of it, corporations and other outside groups were suddenly allowed to spend unlimited money on elections. Think about super PACs and foreign money coming into U.S. campaigns in the ways that had never done before. Now, Wolfpack's proposed amendment, that was just a bridge too far for COSA. And here is COSA President Carl Meckler speaking at that very same 2021 ALEC Policy Summit, explaining why he wants to keep Citizens United. There were groups that participated in that event to whom I'm vehemently opposed. I think one is called American Promise, the other is Wolfpack. These are, in my opinion, radical leftist groups that intend to undermine the First Amendment of the United States of America. Specifically, their aim is to overturn by constitutional amendment the uh, Citizens United decision, which I think is one of the greatest free speech decisions 
in American history. If you're of the right, you might not know this history, but Ronald Reagan did a speech that was nationally televised called The Time for Choosing, one of the most important speeches in American conservative history. That was a paid speech, and essentially the regulations that were put in post that speech, uh, which were overturned by the Citizens United decision, were intended to prevent that speech from ever happening again. And so Citizens United opened the floodgates to free speech in the United States of America. And I think it is extraordinarily dangerous, unproductive for us, for people who consider themselves conservatives, to invite that effort into our tent. Okay. You guys, so this is actually a telling quote, right? And I'm going to ask Ralph to explain this more. Um was he referring to Reagan's speech, the one that you know refers to a time for choosing? Yes, yes. Let me give a, a brief history aside here. Ronald Reagan grew up in a family that was democratic in the 20s and early 30s. His family supported FDR. Reagan was an FDR supporter as a very young man and young actor. But after the end of World War II, Reagan became very stridently anti-communist. He went on to become a spokesman and pitchman for businesses and products in the 50s for companies like General Electric. So fast forward to 1964, Reagan had a paid speech, as Meckler talked about, where he threw his support behind Republican presidential candidate Barry Goldwater. This was the foundational election for what we now know as the modern conservative movement. That speech was called a time for choosing. Reagan would go on to move to the Republican Party from that point forward. Two years after this A Time for Choosing speech, he would go on to win the election as governor of California. And of course, in 1980, he won the presidential election over Jimmy Carter. We can save a deeper commentary over Reagan, his presidency, and his impact for another episode. But that 1964 speech, A Time for Choosing, is what Meckler was referring to. Well, thank you, Ralph, because that history is instructive. Um, as is Kosa's openness about that being a paid speech, right? Yes and, yes. and they want more of the same. So it's clear that Kosa really wants to keep corporate money in elections. And this flies in the face of public opinion, because over the past decade, the influence of big money in politics has been a big concern in both major parties and in 80% of the American public as a whole. If we go back to 2019 and look at a Gallup poll from that year, 85% of Democrats and 74% of Republicans voiced dissatisfaction with campaign finance laws. So groups like COSA are actually working directly against the will of the people, and they're not working to win popular sentiment to their side. They're really looking to permanently lock in the influence of money in politics. Exactly. At this point, it's an open page in their playbook. And... You can look at what just happened with Leonard Leo in the past month or so as a prime example. Okay, guys. So if you remember, we brought up Leonard Leo in our very first episode as an example of why you should follow the money. You guys remember that it was a news tip of ours. Leo is the architect of the Federalist Society strategy in changing the Supreme Court and more broadly, the federal judiciary. We talked in episode one about how he directs hundreds of millions of dollars towards these goals. Well, in August, Leo received a gift from billionaire Barry Side, and it is truly unprecedented in United States history. Yeah, really, really unbelievable. Now, just a bit of background here. Side owned a company called Triplight. It's a company that made 
mundane but integral everyday items for people's homes or for businesses. Things like surge protectors and data center equipment. Side was also a quiet donor to conservative causes for many years, but for the past two years, his company, Triplite, began working with Leo's nonprofit political organization, which is called Marble Freedom Trust, to transfer Side's 100% ownership stake in Triplite into Leo's trust. The company was then quickly sold by the trust to a third company, Eaton Corporation, for $1.65 billion. But because Marble Freedom Trust is a nonprofit organization, they're exempt from income taxes. And the estimates are that by doing the transaction in this way, almost $400 million in estimated taxes from that sale instead went right into Marble Freedom Trust. So this story, you guys, sent out shockwaves in the political world, as you might imagine, right? And Leah was quick to name donors to more liberal causes, you know, like George Soros, claiming his group was only seeking a more level playing field. But the network of conservative donors has long been a very lucrative one. Again, go back and listen to episode one if you need a refresher on this. And this highlights the problem of money in politics, and more broadly speaking, the idea that only big money can transform policies. The events of the last month outline this problem even more. And I'm speaking of the other major company to donate their value to a cause. That company is Patagonia. In mid-September, founder Yvonne Chouinard, his wife and adult children, gave away their ownership in the apparel maker to two entities, the Patagonia Purpose Trust and the Hold Fast Collective. Both received all the company's stock, which is close to $3 billion, and the collective pledged to put all profits toward battling climate change. It's a total expected to be $100 million per year. Now, Patagonia has been involved in climate change causes for a long time, and they often support grassroots organizations, so this funding isn't necessarily going into politics to match the donation by Barry's side. But there is a perception out there that to compete with a donation like the one that Side gave, the key is to find more billionaires or more corporations that would be willing to do the same thing. But that thinking is misguided. Matching money would never work and it would push true power and influence even more into the hands of the select few who actually have that kind of money. The answer lies in removing the influence of big money from our elections. You know, as Citizens United, our federal elections have turned into this financial arms race. The website, OpenSecrets.org, which is a nonprofit organization that covers money and politics, well, you know, these guys had a review of the cost for successful House and Senate races back in 2018. And you guys, these numbers are staggering. The average amount of money spent to win a congressional seat was $2 million. And the Senate? Well, that cost is way higher. Of the 35 winners of Senate races that year, the average price per campaign was almost $16 million. Wow, and that's 2018. Yeah, so it's higher now, yeah. right? Yeah. So this leaves very few options for prospective candidates. You can be independently wealthy and put up a chunk of your own money for a campaign, or you can have a wealthy political benefactor, like, say... Arizona Republican Senate candidate, Blake Masters, yeah. right? Yeah. 
He is financially supported by his mentor, PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel. And there's a third option, and that's getting institutional backing from groups like the Congressional or Senate Campaign Committees, which are controlled by both parties. You know, in the midst of all this, you can try to run a campaign on small contributions, and that might work, but it is honestly a very steep hill to climb. Yeah. And of course, running for president all but requires hundreds of millions of dollars these days. Even a generation ago, when Ross Perot made the last credible third-party challenge, he was able to do it with his own money. But the list of individuals who could do that now, well, it's even smaller, and it would signify power being centered even more in their hands. Because money like this is going to start showing up in state senate races, city council races, and, you know, even things like local judgeships. And the big barrier to access that money already creates will become an impenetrable wall. Chasing bigger dollar amounts is just not healthy in a society where wealth is already hyper-focused on the top one-tenth of one percent of citizens. And this will lead us into full-on, overt, oligarchic control of the government. That is, of course, unless there was money and a movement pushing one big change in the Constitution. One of the firms that corporations are not people and that money does not equal free speech. That, in turn, would nullify two Supreme Court decisions that have really led us down this path the past 50 or so years. One of them, of course, being Citizens United, which we explained earlier. The second being Buckley versus Vallejo, the 1976 ruling that restrictions on campaign spending by an individual candidate was an infringement on their freedom of expression. But, as you heard earlier with Carl Meckler's comments, this is explicitly the kind of amendment that COSA is vehemently fighting against. And this is why we bring up these billion-dollar political gifts and show that both are a problem. Money has outsized influence in our society, and the more money you have, the more influence you can obtain. So getting in the way of the money isn't enough. We have to dare to dream of a change here that we can all believe in, like eliminating this kind of monetary influence on elections. And if the Constitution is the vehicle for such a change, we cannot be afraid to use it, even in these perilous times, perhaps especially in these perilous times. Okay, you guys. So we've brought up a lot of ways in which forces outside of our control are trying to concentrate even more power in the hands of the few, both by trying to make U.S. elections less democratic and controlling a potential rewrite of the Constitution. And at this point, some of you may feel like this is just a predestined course of history, you know, because we don't have billions of dollars <laughs> to try to influence the outcome of this. And, you know, it's it's not like we're in a position where we nominate who gets on the Supreme Court, right? So, I mean, there maybe are some folks among you who feel like we're just spectators waiting for this to happen. But we're not. And remember that the theme for season two of this podcast is equipping you to reimagine the world so we don't have to just settle for what's given to us. We are deliberately telling you all of this early before a lot of newspapers start publishing stories about it so that you can get involved in the process to rewrite the Constitution if you want to. 
Yeah, at this stage, what's needed most is educating ourselves and spreading awareness. Listen to the sound clips from Alex Policy Summit in December 2021. We're going to link those in the show notes. Another thing to do is learn more from Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. In all of the House and Senate on either side of the aisle, there's no one else who's doing more presentations about money and politics with the regularity and detail that Senator Whitehouse does. You can connect with your representatives, particularly on the state level. Federal lawmakers tend to be more high profile, but as we mentioned earlier, there's more and more money flowing to the states. For example, those bills written by Alec, most of the time they show up in state houses. It's good to know what your state reps are doing and for them to know what you care about. Recognize when you hear the false debate over whether the United States is a democracy or a republic. Pay attention to who's saying this and who's paying people to say this. Again, tip number three for reading the news, follow the money. And talk about this issue with your family and friends. Post on social media, connect with others who care about reducing money in politics. Build that community now. And over time, that will reveal to you more actions you can take. And as you do this, you know, you may feel like your voice is too small to matter, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, You know, I feel like this sometimes, frankly. (laughs) And when I do, I remember the author Rebecca Solnit and her book called Hope in the Dark. It is an excellent commentary on what it means to make change in our times. So we're going to provide a link to Solnit's 2016 essay in The Guardian, where she discussed the updated version of this book. She wrote, Hope to me has never been so faithful or expansive that everything we say and do to defend the civil rights ideals matters. You have to have a hell of a lot of faith in the smallest of actions, especially when you may not see the results in your lifetime. And Solnit also describes what it means to be hopeful. She wrote, It is the belief that what we do matters even though how and when it may matter, who and what it may impact, are not things we can know beforehand. We may not, in fact, know them afterwards either, but they matter all the same, and history is full of people whose influence was most powerful after they were gone. And that's our show for today, guys. Thank you, as always, for listening. Now, if you have a question about this episode or any of our past episodes, please let us know. Drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com and tell us something like, Hey, Ralph and Joan, can you catch me up to speed on A, B, or C? And please like and subscribe to the podcast, which you can now find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more of your favorite platforms. And remember to give us a follow, leave a comment, leave a review. We want to hear from you. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CatchMeUpToSpeed. And as always, you guys, thanks for spending time with us today. Talk to you again soon.